This is Crane's Daily Gist. I'm Amy Guth. Today, Michigan cancels its legislative session to avoid armed protests. We'll talk more about that story and others coming up today on the podcast, but first, this word from our sponsor. Your health and well-being are top of mind right now, and that includes your financial security. Wintrust Mortgage can help. They provide refinance solutions so you can take advantage of low rates to reduce payments. And they have the sophisticated technology to let you go through the process conveniently from home. Uncertainty can add stress to an already tense time. Rely on Wintrust Mortgage. Visit wintrustmortgage.com slash refi. Wintrust Mortgage is a division of Barrington Bank and Trust Company, N.A., and MLS number 449042, equal housing lender. Businesses looking for help in navigating the COVID-19 crisis should check out Small Business Lifeline, a new weekly podcast from Cranes. Every Thursday, the free Small Business Lifeline will offer expert advice and information on accessing needed resources during the crisis. Listen to Small Business Lifeline at chicagobusiness.com SBL. Earlier today, I spoke with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, only we did something a little different, and we did a video live stream on the Crane's Chicago Business Facebook page. So head over there to watch an archive video of that conversation, but here is the audio from it, slightly edited for listenability, if we can just pretend like that's a word. Anyway, here is our conversation. Well, so hi, everybody. This is uh, Crane's Daily Gist Live. We're doing something a little bit different today. We normally have this weekly conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. And today we're just going to do that live. So hi to everybody on Facebook and LinkedIn, listening live and watching live. We're coming to you live from our respective homes. Dennis, welcome. Glad to have you as ever. Nice to see you. I haven't seen you in ages. I know. It's been weeks, Amy. This is this is actually good for me too. Indeed. All right. So lots of things to talk about today, and we don't want to keep everybody waiting too long. So I think we'll start today by let's talk about real estate prices. You, I often say you do the math so none of us have to. And indeed, you have a story recently that says that real estate prices are defying the COVID crisis. Explain what you mean by that. Well, they haven't dropped yet. I mean, is really what it comes down to. And the signs seem to point to not a big drop in the near future. That's near future. We can't talk about the long-term future now, partly because, of course, we don't know where this crisis is going to lead, but also because really what the data I'm working with represents is who's looking at houses now. So we don't know if in June, in July, people will continue. But for now, data that I have as of Monday from both the Chicago Association of Realtors and Midwest Real Estate data shows that prices, there was not a week during the crisis when prices were below where they were last year. So in every week of the crisis, prices have been up, you know, 2%, a little more than that, which is not enormous. But what it does mean is that we haven't yet seen a collapse. Caveat, most of those sales were in the pipeline before the crisis started. I put my house under contract in February and then closed during the crisis. So that part is pretty obvious that prices wouldn't go down too far. But I had been hearing from a lot of people that buyers were saying, oh, sellers are going to slash their price because they want to get it moved. One, we have not seen slashing of prices. Two, the data also show a big increase in the number of people looking at homes, which means demand is there. Three, inventory in certain places, and in particular, single-family homes in the city, is very, very tight. So lots of demand, not a lot of supply, leads to prices at least staying solid, if not going up. 
One of the things, of course, we need to be clear on is inventory varies around the region. So if you're looking in a town where there's like Burr Ridge, where there's an enormous amount of property on the market, we can't say prices won't go down, but we also can't say that they would go down because of the crisis. Do you have a sense of how far into it we need to be before we start seeing, okay, this is phased out of what was already in the pipeline and these are transactions that started once the crisis was well underway? At what point do we hit that? When we get into June, we should mostly be seeing properties that listed, went under contract, and closed all during the crisis. I put my house on the market in late March, or I had it on the market right before the shutdowns, took it off, put it back on uh, in that sort of weird period where people didn't know what to do, I took it off. So when we get to the point where the majority of the properties have been listed, gone under contract, and sold during the crisis, that will be one good strong sign. The other is if we see a lot of properties that were on the market, doesn't matter when they came on the market, but closed during the crisis at dramatic discounts, that might give us an idea that sellers were desperately cutting prices. But again, we haven't seen sellers desperately cutting prices, not any more than they were already doing. We had, you know, at the high end of the market, you and I have discussed many times, the big houses, many of them are not selling. And so a million dollar price cut may have come because you're really ready to get rid of it or may have come because of the crisis. And we won't know until we have sort of a bulk amount of data. Another bit of data that you've looked at recently is uh, we've talked so much over the last year plus about how the Chicago real estate market seems to behave very differently than the rest of the country's markets. You know, we do our own little thing. That's how we roll. But you've written recently about how this market, how the Chicago area market is a bit more vulnerable to foreclosures than other markets. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, so that may sound contradictory to what I just said, but what I just said was talking about people who are in the market buying or selling houses. When we're talking foreclosures, we're talking about people who are in an existing home. They're not necessarily buying or selling. And the reasons we are more more uh, vulnerable to foreclosures include we have the highest proportion of people who are seriously underwater on their mortgage, which is to say I owe far more on the house than it's worth on the market. And when I'm in that position, when I'm upside down or under water, I can't sell. But also, if I'm in that position now, and one or both of us in the household lose our income, and let's say we already went through the housing crash of 12 years ago, so this house has become sort of a burden on our uh, hanging around our necks, we have such a small purchase on the house, we have a, such a small foothold that we are likely to let go. I'm not saying that people should do that if they're in that position, but we have the greatest proportion of homeowners of any major city of people who would be having to make that choice. If I have to feed my kids, pay my health care, or pay for the house, maybe I'm just going to let go of the house because it hasn't been a performing investment for a number of years. And do you get the sense of, of how big that gap is between Chicago and other cities? We have more people who are seriously underwater than New York and Los Angeles combined and almost enough to add Houston. If you add Houston, those three cities have slightly more than we do. And of course, we're smaller than both New York and Los Angeles. That has been true for a couple of years. Our market has been so slow to heal, as you and I have discussed so many times, that people haven't refilled their equity accounts. While in cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, people have far more home equity and then would be less likely. It's not impossible that they would let go of the house, but they'd be less likely to if they have a big equity stake than if you're in the position where not only do you not have a big equity stake, but you have, you're negative. 
Speaking of a big steak, there is a, a spot in Lincoln Park that we should all be... Do you like that segue? Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's a spot in Lincoln Park. It's three lots together that potentially, anyway, have, have something cooking there. Tell me what's going on there. Yeah, this, this property, uh, we wrote about it back in 2018 when they first put it on the market. The, these sellers have owned this house, or now they're no longer the sellers. These former owners owned the house from the mid-1980s. The two buildings you see there on your screen were built in the 1870s or 80s. The records conflict. And these people bought it when it had been empty for quite a while. The two buildings are connected. So it's it had been empty for a while. It was in demolition court. They were part of that wave of people who rehabbed Lincoln Park. And in 20. 2018, they had it up for sale with what you might call the next wave of Lincoln Park, which is those builders of gigantic mansions, those mega houses that are on, this is on Howe, but on all the blocks of Burling, Orchard, Howe, south of Lincoln Park High School, these mega mansions have been going up for 15 or 20 years. Wait, is this the area that you gave a name to? What was that called? uh, Actually, a reader did. Back when I worked at another place, I, I said I was trying to come up with a name. These streets are Burling, Orchard, Howe, Willow, and Armitage. Um, and if you put that together, it becomes "Whoa, baby," which is a way to describe the. <laughs> Thank you for okay, remembering so that. that. Okay, so the a potential potential mega mansion happening in "Whoa, baby" area. Yeah, so there may be another "Whoa, baby" house because this site could handle a house of fifteen thousand five hundred square feet. A typical bungalow is about twelve hundred square feet, so you're talking about more than ten bungalows all piled onto that lot. And so they had a deal at the time. The developer was offering this as a fifteen million dollar project. That was canceled. That went off the market back in June. And then suddenly this week, uh, this house sold, this property sold. It was uh, not listed the same way. The homeowners sold it rather than going through this builder. They got $5.85 million for it. And their agent confirmed to me, and they confirmed to Mary Schmeek at the Chicago Tribune, that these buildings are being demolished. We don't know. I mean, it, there is the slim possibility that this buyer, who is a homeowner, not a builder, I got that confirmed. There is the very small possibility that somebody builds an 8,000 square foot house and another 5,000 square foot house. We don't know that. It most likely what happens is we see a 15,000 square foot house go on there and we stand out front and say, whoa, baby. (laughs) Hence the name. And then the name works so well. Other things happening. I want to revisit a story. You and I talked about this a long time ago and that it has a Wizard of Oz connection in Humboldt Park that is really interesting. We kind of talked at the time about how while a lot of attention was put on L. Frank Baum's residence in Chicago, the actually things happened in Lincoln Park, the Oz Park right in that area in Lakeview. But then there was this effort for Humboldt Park for some yellow bricks, but now a mural's going up. Remind people of the backstory and tell me what's happening with this mural. L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz and created all those characters, lived in Chicago in the late 19th century, early 20th century. In 1899, when he wrote The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, which was the first of 14 novels where the Wizard of Oz characters appear, he lived on the corner of Humboldt Boulevard and Augusta in Humboldt Park. The house where he lived is gone. It was demolished decades ago. And in the 1980s, some affordable housing was built there, affordable rentals uh, by a group called Bickerdike. In recent years, they have been rehabbing a very large portfolio of rental affordable rentals that includes these on this corner. And so in the fall, they started a project to sort of link 
L. Frank Baum to their projects and memorialize Baum with the phrase, there's no place like home. They provide affordable rental housing. He made that line famous. Fits together real well. Last fall, they surrounded the corner with a yellow brick road with a yellow brick sidewalk, and it looks really great. They were going to put up a mural as well. Because of COVID-19, they delayed it. It was supposed to have opened last week or earlier. They've just put it up this week. When I ran the story on Monday, they were going to start on Tuesday, and by Friday, Tomorrow it should be done. Um, It's by Hector Duarte, whose picture we see there on the screen. They didn't want to give us a complete image of the mural because they want to retain some of that surprise. But he's in front of a rendering of it there. Hector Duarte is a well-known artist in Chicago. Many people know his house in Pilsen, which is wrapped with images of Gulliver's travels. And he then is the person doing this mural that you'll see on that corner within the next day or so. That's very cool. I feel like at the time we spent an unbelievable amount of time talking about the yellow bricks. Wasn't there something about the yellow bricks? Because it wasn't just they were painted, they're actually yellow through and through. Well, they essentially got gold bricks. They got a variety of brick that shines. There are a lot of school buildings in Chicago built with that standard yellow brick, cream city brick is what I think they call it in Milwaukee. But these actually have like a shiny tint. It looks like if you go to that corner, we have a picture in the story, but if you go to that corner, you can't help but notice that it looks like a yellow brick road. You mentioned Lincoln Park where Baum is memorial realized in Oz Park. As far as we know, he didn't do any work over there. That's just when his reputation was coming back. That's where he was memorialized. I think this is going to compete with that and really become the place that people, now that it really says he lived here when he created those characters, this may be the place that people really associate with Baum in Chicago. That's right, because there was no, at least as far as you knew, no connection per se to the site of Oz Park. His home was in Humboldt. Right. He and his family lived at several addresses when they lived in Chicago. But as far as I can tell, none were in Lincoln Park. They were all in the Humboldt Park area. And this, again, is where he lived at the time that he actually created those characters. I love the history detective part that you get to do on your on your beat of real estate. It's so much fun. Okay. Another thing, because that Be Like Mike song hasn't been out of my head in weeks. So let's put it back there. Um, Michael Jordan, because a lot of people have been watching The Last Dance. And so that song keeps coming up, that Be Like Mike song. And I just put it in all of your heads. Um, Uh, But Michael Jordan's home has been, well, it's being for sale has been a storied tale in and of itself, that it's been on the market a minute. And uh, there's been a lot of conversation about the price. Tell me the latest. Right. Well, so it's been on the market since 2012, if you can believe that. When it came on the market in February 2012, came on the market at $29 million. But the reason to talk about it today is that today is the fifth anniversary of the price. On five years ago today, Jordan shifted to a price $14,855. If you look at those digits, 14855, they add up to... 23, his number. And five years later, he's still asking the same price. So happy anniversary to that price. And, and I'm sure a very frustrated realtor who was just not, <laughs> was like, can really, can we make, make the price come down a little bit? But interestingly, as you've kind of pointed out before, it's, they haven't necessarily played up the Michael Jordan part of that. It's just been a house. I mean, everyone knows that's the house because there's a giant 23 on the gate. But tell me more about how that's maybe being more, uh, that's maybe a little more prominent now. Well, this is also the fifth anniversary of their putting his name. They really started marketing it as Michael Jordan's house five years ago today. In the prior three years or a little more than three years, yeah, it was obvious. It was my, everybody knew it was Michael Jordan's house since the early nineties when he built it. Everyone has known where his house was and shout out to me in 1992 who revealed where his house was uh, in an article (laughs) at the time, but he had it on the market with his name not attached 
again, everybody knew, but it's five years ago today, they not only did they change the number, the price to a number that where the digits add up to 23, but they put his name in the listing and it is still there. And they also, this no longer exists. They were offering, if you bought the house, you got one pair of every year's version of Air Jordans. At that time, they had moved it. It's listed with a Chicago real estate agent. At that time, five years ago, they enlisted a celebrity agent who sells big mansions in LA. And that's where all this sort of sizzle came from, the number, the Air Jordans, all that. That relationship seems to have gone away. I think at some point somebody realized we can't even sell it with a, with a bunch of pairs of Air Jordans. Uh, so now it remains in the hands of the agent from Chicago. And, you know, I don't know what happens. At some point, does Jordan say, I'm going to donate it? Does he cut the price in half? We really have no idea. The primary reason it hasn't sold is that it's nearly $15 million. It's three miles from Lake Michigan. Nothing nothing in Highland Park until less than a year ago had sold for more than $3 million off the lakefront. About a year ago, a house sold for about $4 million farther from the lake than Jordan's, but it doesn't have the countertops that are built for a tall guy like Jordan. It doesn't have all the glass block. It, it's not quite as, it's an ornate house, but it's not quite what Jordan's is. Um, so what I used to say is nothing has ever sold at that price over there, but now one other house has sold in the $5 million range. So he does have a comp, but he's still asking nearly $15 million. Hmm. I do appreciate a house with tall countertops. As a tall person, I appreciate that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not Michael Jordan tall. I'm just regular lady tall. All right. Well, um, so tell me what is coming up in the week ahead on the, on the residential real estate beat. Well, one of the things I'm checking into, I surprised you either last week or the week before by saying that those happening- Oh, you that, surprise me all the time. That's true. Uh, when I mentioned that homes are still selling at a half million and up in Bronzeville, we've really, the, the two super hot neighborhoods have been the West Loop with just ridiculous transaction activity. It's so fast over there. And Bronzeville, where um, we've had do- seen dozens of new construction houses sell in the 500,000 and up range. And I surprised you recently when I said, yeah, I, I see a couple every week. Just, I think I said that here last week. Since then, three more have sold. Um, so what I'm looking into is what is this current crisis going to do to that real boom that's happening in Bronzeville? Does it stop the new construction or does it help push that forward? Um, what elements would have to be in place for that to be pushed forward and, and not be affected by the crisis? Well, I think if we see that demand is continuing at the same pace, if we see developers announcing a lot more construction, which we haven't yet seen, then we would think that it's going to continue. One of my concerns is if it fades, and we don't know, again, whether it will or won't, then Bronzeville ends up sort of one of the things that has changed about Bronzeville because of this boom is that a lot of vacant land has been filled up. A lot of long time vacant land has been filled up. There were some condos built on a site that had been empty for something like 40 years. And we know that that part of the city really struggles with this fact that there's so much disused property. So I may come out my front door and have empty land on both sides of me, and that has an effect. Uh, so one of the things I'd like to see is whether whether we can prevent that from happening, prevent the end of construction from leaving Bronzeville with a lot of blank spots. Indeed. All right. Well, we will all keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much, Dennis. And nice to actually look at you while we're talking. Thanks, Amy. We'll look again. We haven't done that lately, but maybe we'll do this again sometime. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in today for this live stream experiment on Facebook and LinkedIn. And for those of you listening to this audio on the podcast, be sure to head to the Crane's Chicago Business Facebook page to watch an archive of the full video interview from earlier today. One quick note, though, before we move on to headlines, that reference to Humboldt and Augusta, make that Humboldt and Wabansia.
Coming up, McDonald's outlines conditions for reopening dine-in spaces and ups its marketing spending to accelerate the chain's recovery. More on that story and others right after this. For a daily roundup of stories about how the coronavirus outbreak is impacting business and the economy, sign up for our free newsletter at chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update. All one word. The paywall has been dropped for all coronavirus stories at chicagobusiness.com, but we do encourage you to consider subscribing to support our journalism. And if you receive cranes in print at the office and are missing it while working from home, you can always access the electronic edition anytime at chicagobusiness.com com slash digital edition. Again, that's chicagobusiness.com slash coronavirus update for the free newsletter and chicagobusiness.com slash digital edition. So you don't miss a thing from the print edition while you're working from home. Looking to today's stories, Michigan closed down its capital and canceled its legislative session rather than face the possibility of an armed protest and death threats against Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. The protest, meant to advocate opening the state for business despite the coronavirus pandemic, followed one in April that resulted in protesters wearing military-style gear and carrying long guns, crowding the state house, confronting police and taunting lawmakers. The shutdown was done with little fanfare at the end of Wednesday's state Senate session. Near day's end, lawmakers in the Republican majority chamber simply adjourned until Tuesday rather than call the next previously scheduled meeting for earlier this morning. For the past week, lawmakers have been debating how to safely work and vote in session while the state's laws allow people to bring firearms into the building. The debate grew more tense in recent days as some lawmakers read about threats to the governor's life on social media, which were published in the Detroit Metro Times. Michigan's attorney general issued an opinion on May 11th saying that the state Capital Commission, which is a body of six lawmakers who oversee the building and its grounds, could ban firearms and voted to study a ban this week. Today's protest, billed as, quote, Judgment Day, was organized by the right-wing group Michigan United for Liberty, which is protesting the state's extended stay-home order. Whitmer pushed the order at the end of May while giving automakers, their suppliers, and other manufacturers the green light to go back to work. On its Facebook page, the group posted a memo asking that protesters remain peaceful. Still, lawmakers feared a repeat of April 30th, when armed protesters entered the Senate chamber and stood above them in a visitor's gallery during the session. A Democratic state senator on Tuesday proposed a bill to ban firearms altogether in the Capitol building. Among downtown hotel properties still operating during the pandemic-induced statewide stay-home order, the average daily rate fell last week to just below $100 per room, which is its lowest mark since the shutdown began. That, according to data from hotel research firm STR. The 99.33 average during the week that ended May 9th fell from 102.69 the week prior. By contrast, the national average for all hotels rose for the third straight week to 76.35, that, according to STR. This is all likely the product of a steep challenge for large urban areas like Chicago, where population density can make social distancing a lot more difficult. STR Senior Vice President of Lodging Insights said in a statement, overall, the recovery will be uneven across the country, also saying that markets with more relaxed distancing measures will see a sharper uptick than others. The impact on downtown Chicago hotels has been harsh, and it's unclear when many will reopen or when consumers will regain confidence to use them. The 
data from STR shows that last week's daily average rates were down 54% from the similar week a year ago. Head to chicagobusiness.com to see this data more in depth for yourself, including numbers from specific downtown hotel properties. But while the performance metrics languish, hotels are focusing on what new practices they'll need in order to reopen. The Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association just today announced a series of cleaning and hygiene recommendations that include protocols about signs promoting social distancing, cleaning frequently touched surfaces like elevator button panels, getting rid of stuff like decorative pillows, reading materials, pens and paper, and other unnecessary room amenities, and working out contactless room service. The University of Illinois system said it's putting $160 million of its endowment with global asset manager BlackRock to invest in a new, quote, environmentally and socially focused strategy. The system, which includes the state's public universities in Urbana-Champaign, Chicago, and Springfield, said in a statement it'll be the first investor in this new strategy from BlackRock, which parallels the system's goals of investing in, quote, physical and fiscal resources with future generations in mind. And all this as investors, especially younger ones, are focusing on aligning their investing with their values, particularly around environmental, social, and governance issues. And more and more, asset managers are coming up with new ways to get their business. The investment is about a fifth of the system's $720 million endowment and the bulk of its allotment for U.S. equity investments. System President Tim Colleen said in the statement that the money will be invested in companies that mirror the system's values when it comes to, among other things, sustainability, environmental protection, and labor practices. As reported earlier by the Wall Street Journal, McDonald's wants owners of its restaurants to make a lot of changes before reopening for dining in. The company is asking franchisees to ensure that restrooms are cleaned every 30 minutes, as are digital ordering kiosks after each customer. They've also asked restaurants for other changes, including enforcing social distancing and turning off soda fountains if they aren't able to assign a worker to operate them. The guide from McDonald's HQ also recommends that franchisees buy things like a more than 700 touchless sink to reduce contact with surface areas in bathrooms. And in a video released yesterday, CEO Chris Kempsinski also outlined plans for a significant boost to the company's marketing budget in an effort to aid recovery during the pandemic. He also went on to say that the company would offer financial support to the franchisees who've been hit the hardest during the crisis and special assistance to those facing unique circumstances, such as offering a lower rent structure in places where restaurants continue to be delivery only for the time being. More on this story and many others at chicagobusiness.com. Until next week, that's all for Crane's Daily Gist. Special thanks to producer Haima Black, as well as to today's guest, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories most on your mind. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next week.